You're listening to a podcast by the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, where top China experts are here to answer your questions. The world was watching U.S. diplomacy in June as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Beijing and President Joe Biden hosted Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Dr. Kanti Bajpai, Vice Dean and Professor of International Relations at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, is here with NCUSCR staff member Prayesh Pushkarna to weigh in with a Southeast Asian perspective and to help us understand the view from Singapore. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Dr. Bajpai. It's so great to be sitting down with you. Uh, would you mind briefly introducing yourself for our listeners? My name is Kanti Bajpai and I'm a professor of international relations at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, which is part of the National University of Singapore. Thank you so much. And, you know, sitting in Singapore, having expertise on U.S.-India relations, U.S.-China relations, and India-China relations. There is so much happening right now in this world with Secretary Blinken and other U.S. officials' visits to China recently and Prime Minister Modi's visit to the United States recently. You're the perfect person to sit down with, and so I'm really excited that we get this opportunity. But just to start off, I have a few questions about Secretary Blinken's recent visit to China. So there's been a lot of talk about Blinken's visit in the U.S. media and, of course, in the Chinese media. But from where we're sitting in Singapore, what are some of the regional reactions to Blinken's visit to China from Southeast Asia? How are Southeast Asian countries viewing the sort of unfreezing of U.S.-China relations at the highest level? I think in Southeast Asia, the the reaction to Blinken's visit to China is one of some relief. Uh, It suggests that there are lines of communication open between the two superpowers. Southeast Asia is very concerned about having to make a choice, a strategic choice, between the United States and China. And so this suggests that the two are prepared to reopen channels of communication and hopefully stabilize uh, the the military and diplomatic uh, environment in, in this region, the large region of East Asia, which is important for Southeast Asia as well. So I think, you know, overall, the messaging that's come out of that meeting is that they're trying to resume business within some limits, and that's good for Southeast Asia. Are countries in the region getting this kind of broad sense that this is a good start to kind of a little bit more of a productive relationship? Or do you get the sense that there are also some regional reactions that say, you know, this might just be hot air, we're waiting for some tangible actions to come out of these meetings before we start really paying attention? Well, I think that's right. I mean, the, uh, I said that there's cautious optimism, uh, and the caution is that this might be a one-off, the meeting between Blinken and counterparts. When Secretary of Austin was in Singapore for the Shangri-La Dialogue, for instance, uh, his Chinese counterpart refused to meet him. So that was almost simultaneous. It was a few days before Blinken went to China. So, you know, there are contrary trends there, obviously. Uh, Blinken is welcome in Beijing, uh, but Austin is not welcome to speak to Chinese counterparts here in, on the sidelines of the Shangri-La Dialogue. Um, the Americans want to resume a more business-like uh, relationship, uh, but are continuing to restrict access, Chinese access to technology. They're stitching up relationships with a whole bunch of, of allies and partners who uh, you know, are in a position to deliver technologies such as semiconductors and so on to, to China. Uh, so that's another contradiction. Um, engaging in a dialogue in Beijing at, at a strategic military level, but then uh, continuing to prosecute the competition uh, at the economic level. 
And that bears on Southeast Asia because perhaps in the short term, um, the, the problem for Southeast Asians uh, immediately is that supply chains being disrupted because of the competition between the United States and China and de-risking, decoupling, all of that you know, uh, has implications for Southeast Asian businesses and uh, economic decision-making. So you know, Southeast Asians are, are happy to see the resumption of some dialogue at the, at the big grand strategic level, but they also want to see what's in the mix going forward on the economic relationship between the US and China. In a day-to-day -day sense, you know, that's more pertinent uh, than, say, uh, you know, uh, a conflagration over Taiwan. Um, and so that's why I say cautious optimism. Great that they're talking to each other, but, you know, uh, the real rubber hits the road on economics uh, here. So uh, let's see how that progresses. So we're sitting in the National University of Singapore, where you are a professor. Could you give us a little bit of an overview of what are the couple of areas that Singapore in particular is most hopeful for when it comes to U.S.-China cooperation? I think Singapore has been pretty clear where it wants uh, U.S.-China cooperation. Obviously, in the military security realm, one of the nightmares for Singapore and others is a conflict over Taiwan, um, which would draw the region in, or at least there's a the very big fear that it would. Take, for example, the U.S.-Singapore uh, military security relationship. Would the Americans activate it? and uh, ask for port facilities or intelligence sharing or even some kind of uh, naval escort or or r and r and you know and, and and repair and maintenance and and so on in in the instance of a conflict over taiwan uh, and if they do ask well, what is singapore going to do given that it has quite a strong relationship with with china and of course we have to worry about uh, in singapore about the internal realm as well i mean uh, this is a, a country of 70% or so uh, ethnic Chinese. Um, so, you know, uh, there's a kind of uh, internal political social uh, factor that um, the Singapore government would have to take into account. So I think certainly uh, a conflict in Taiwan, that's probably the biggest worry. The South China Sea these days is relatively stable. So I don't think there's such a great worry that there would be a conflict there. And in any case, the Americans are far more agnostic about what they would do in the case of a South China Sea problem, whereas I think it's pretty clear that they would have to take some military action in the case of a Taiwan uh, uh, invasion or, or, or conflict. So I think the first very big problem for Singapore is what do they do in response to American requests uh, over a Taiwan conflict? Um, but the other, and this is again the bread and butter issue, uh, and that's the economics. Supply chain disruption, technology uh, spigots being turned off, um, you know, uh, technology denials, the pressures coming either from the Chinese side or the American side on, on whose technology and standards to adopt in say uh, internet protocols or 5G and 6G and so on. I mean, these are very real concerns here. Uh, the economic issues are, are very central for all Southeast Asians, but particularly for small Singapore, which uh, must be economically integrated and connected, not just to its regional partners, but to the United States and China particularly. So I think you know those are the two areas where uh, Singapore would definitely want some repairing of relationships and a kind of normalization. Um, I think the broader 
uh, issue for Singapore would be, yeah, kind of normalization also of people to people and, and so on, uh, in the hope that that will condition the overall US-China relationship and not make it awkward for you know, Chinese and Americans to visit each other. Um, they often transit through Singapore, uh, you know, and, and they have subsidiaries or, or whatever here. And uh, it just makes it awkward when, you know, uh, visas and things become very difficult. Uh, and there's a breakdown in, in uh, say, university cooperation. Uh, we're right here at the Lee Kuan Yew School. If American academics who work with Singapore counterparts and so on can't go to China or the reverse, Chinese academics who can't get to America or work in projects where, you know, American rules may apply on intellectual sharing or, or whatever, and all of that makes it awkward for Singapore academics and universities, I think. So, you know, these are at least three areas where I think Singapore would be quite concerned um, and would want a rapprochement or a easing of tensions. Yeah, I think sometimes as much as Singapore is often thought of as a country that really punches above its weight diplomatically, economically, has a lot of regional power, it still is so dependent on freedom of movement and academia and goods and military assets uh, from you know, various countries uh, that that really makes a lot of sense in terms of Singapore's interests. Yeah, I mean, Singapore's DNA is openness. Uh, ever since 1972, when Ali Kuan Yew and his, his colleagues, uh, including uh, uh, former Foreign Minister Rajaratnam, wrote about or thought about Singapore as a global city before the word, you know, globalization was being bruited about very much. Um, they were very clear that Singapore's prosperity, survival, depended on an outward lookingness, uh, the access of people to Singapore, talented and, 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 and so on. Um, and, you know, Singapore had to be relevant uh, to others and it could only be relevant if it was really open. Um, and so any closing of the regional mind uh, attendant on a US-China conflict is a problem for Singapore. Yeah, that's great. I, I love the way you put that. If you don't mind, I want to transition a little bit now relatedly to Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's visit to the US at the end of June, where he spoke to Congress and received quite a warm welcome from most of the American political spectrum, even if not um, not everyone, but a lot of people in the U.S. are viewing Modi's visit in the broader geopolitical context of U.S.-China relations and also India-China relations, which have obviously gone through many peaks and valleys over the last 50, 60 years. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about the broad state of India-China relations today? Of course, there are two huge countries that have so many different national interests, but given that they're bordering countries, they've had so many opportunities to interact with each other over the last few years. If we have to think about the state of relations in 2023, to what extent do you think from the Indian perspective, India sees China as either a partner or a competitor or a strategic threat or some combination of all of those things? In the Indian mind, all of those things are, are true. Um, of course, I mean, the relationship, particularly since 2020, when there was a fracas at a place called Galwan, um, and Indian lives were lost and some Chinese lives were lost. I mean, since then, the relationship has uh, entered a, a kind of uh, freeze, um, um, both metaphorically and diplomatically and militarily. Um, so. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the relationship is not in great shape. Uh, India insists that there can't be business as usual with China, um, you know, until the Chinese pull out of areas that they came into in 2020. 
um, and some other incursions since then, which haven't been quite as dramatic. Um, but you know, there hasn't been much of a movement backwards by the Chinese. There have been some some uh, retractions of forces, but not to the extent of the status quo ante. Um, so I think you know that's that's on on the one hand. On the other hand, I think it's fair to say that neither government has overreacted, and the Indian government has been quite markedly, significantly, uh, you know, um, cautious. Uh, it's insisting that the Chinese pull out forces, but in fact, there's quite a lot of business as usual as well. And in fact, business. Uh, last year, bilateral trade between uh, India and China was the highest ever. Uh, you know, after a couple of years of, of a downturn, partly due to COVID, partly due to the fracas at Galwan, um, trade resumed uh, to the highest level ever. So um, there's that degree of normalness. Um, the two have embassies that are functioning normally between uh, the two countries. Uh, the leaderships have met at least, you know, at the foreign minister and other level uh, on the sidelines of minilateral or multilateral meetings. Um, you know, uh, Modi has shaken hands with Xi Jinping at one of those. Uh, there hasn't been a great interchange at, at the highest level, but uh, India clearly is not ready for that until there's progress on the border issue. So I think things have been are, are, are fraught and cold, but um, they're not likely to blow up into something uh, really untoward and unmanageable. I think both, of, both sides have been careful to continue some dialogue. Uh, continue normal interactions where they can in the minilateral, multilateral and trading areas. Um, and that's where it is. In terms of, you know, the recent visit of Modi, I mean, it's very clear that China is what drives India and the United States together. It's not the convergence of political values so much, whatever the two leaderships might have said, and especially whatever Mr. Modi might have said about democracy in common. I mean, uh, and nobody takes that seriously, frankly. Um, and it's not such a massive economic relationship, although uh, at about 180 or 90 million uh, do uh, billion dollars bilateral trade, uh, India has peaked with America as well in terms of trade. But it's really the strategic challenge, common strategic challenge of, of China. Um, they won't say it openly, um, but uh, of course, everyone recognizes it and so does Beijing. Yeah, that's so interesting because, of course, in all the public speeches and statements and readouts from both sides, China is hardly mentioned at all. But it's the elephant in the room, or I guess you could say the dragon in the room. Yeah, I think the, the interesting thing is that it's probably Delhi that insists that China is not mentioned uh, in, in the various statements, public or more private. Uh, even at the height of the Galwan fracas with the Chinese, even as India received a certain amount of intelligence and some equipment for high mountain warfare and so on that it needed, it didn't possess, which it got from the United States. Um, I mean, New Delhi made it very clear at that point that it didn't want, you know, uh, very overt American statements of support for India because that might, you know, polarize the situation even more. So, I mean, oddly, it's, it's India, which is in the front lines with China, which is very, very cautious about, uh, you know, a joint statement with the Americans over China. Uh, look at India's behavior in the Quad and in the Indo-Pacific. I think it's widely acknowledged that India is the weak link there, that it tends to water down any suggestion that this is a common front against China. 
Uh, and it's only after Galwan, for instance, that India agreed to higher level meetings of officials uh, in those two forums. Uh, before that, India was uh, tended to downplay uh, both the Indo-Pacific and the Quad. So Delhi is very, very cautious about offending China. Uh, and uh, look at the way that uh, S. Jayashankar, India's foreign minister, uh, uh, has spoken about Western countries, including the American media, not so much the American government, but about the American media, over any criticism in the West, uh, over two things. One, India's stand on uh, the Ukraine war. India won't even call it a war. Uh, it's with the Russians on that. And um, the second issue is, uh, of course, democracy, human rights, liberalism. Uh, so any criticism in the West, either at the official level or Jashankar is, I mean, is, is brutal about it. Uh, at the same time, he makes no statements about Russia or China of any kind of criticism of their behavior, uh, even though, particularly with China, there's a real problem. I mean, all he's saying is uh, to Beijing is get out of our territory, and that's about all he will ever say. So, you know, and, and I think before everyone gets carried away about uh, the United States and India's partners, India's fundamental international outlook is much closer to that of Russia and China than it is to the United States. And let me give you an instance. If you look at the February 4th statement of Putin and Xi Jinping, which was about three weeks before Russia invaded the Ukraine, or Ukraine, I should say, not the Ukraine, that statement contains uh, implied and direct criticism of the existing world order, backed by the United States, liberal internationalism, that whole package of things. There's nothing there uh, that uh, New Delhi would be uncomfortable with in that statement, uh, except for the one criticism that uh, did bite India, and that was the criticism of the Indo-Pacific and the Quad. That India would be a little unhappy about in that statement, but otherwise it would be happy to associate itself with pushback against liberal internationalism against making democracy a big deal or human rights a big deal, the domination of the West of international institutions, the need for multipolarity, multilateralism, and it's all bread and butter stuff for India. Uh, all the dog whistles that uh, Indian foreign policy is associated with. So no quarrel with the Russians and Chinese over that. The quarrel is, is with Western dominance and Western policies on human rights and democracy. So, you know, I don't want to exaggerate this convergence with the United States. And I think it's very, very apparent, um, uh, you know, if you look carefully at statements and behavior on the Indian side. Yeah, from what you're saying, there seems to be a very noticeable paradox in Indian foreign policy, in which maybe domestically there's this strong sentiment against Chinese actions near the border, a much more nationalistic attitude, especially since 2020 with the Galwan incident. But at the same time, as you pointed out, in terms of Indian foreign policy writ large, a unipolar order led by the United States, where India gets to be criticized about human rights or has to answer to journalists, is not necessarily in line with India's foreign policy vision, at least not currently. Is India ever going to square this circle? Or has this kind of always been the paradox of Indian foreign policy? Well, I think it's fair to say uh, that even before Narendra Modi, India used to push back and was uncomfortable about any criticism of its uh, domestic uh, politics. Um, so, you know, it's not new with Modi, it's just much more pugnacious uh, in terms of the response to these things. Uh, I mean, you just have to look at uh, Foreign Minister Jayashankar's behavior over the last 
a uh, few months, last year or so. I mean, he's become India's wolf warrior in effect, you know. But, um, uh, but yes, I mean, you know, a lot depends on how the Americans handle it as well. Uh, in the visit with Biden just now, uh, clearly Biden underplayed the human rights democracy angle. Um, and, you know, America has a history of squaring these circles. Uh, look at Saudi Arabia and the relationship with the Saudis. Uh, when there were East Asian countries, such as South Korea, back in the day before democracy uh, broke out, uh, they worked very carefully and, and, and easily with the South Koreans. Um, you know, the, uh, America has a whole history of working with illiberal dictatorial countries when it suits its strategic interests. Pakistan, for instance, um, you know, uh, other Middle Eastern countries, uh, countries in Latin America, and so on. So I think, you know, um, when we say America, of course, there are all kinds of different constituencies and players. Congressmen may have a slightly different point of view, or some congressmen. The, the American media uh, has a different perspective. Think tanks and so on uh, might say something contradictory to the government. But the White House and the leadership of national security and foreign policy have to be attentive to making partnerships, even if political values differ. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's very clear that the China problem is so severe, or is thought to be, for both the Americans and Indians, that they will find a way to, despite the tensions over political values, uh, to do business together. Right. I think from an American perspective, there is this kind of willingness to paint India in the media and in some foreign policy circles as sort of a darling of the liberal world order, a sort of democratic counterweight to China in an ideological sense. Yeah, I think the, I mean, no one now has too many illusions in the United States about India being a liberal country. But, um, you know, I think the, the issue really is um, that India's size means that it's the only country around the world, and certainly in Asia, that if its economics finally it kind of takes off, uh, that it's the only one that can be a counterpoint to China in the long run. Um, and so, you know, the United States and India are united by the idea that even though they may not be allies in a formal sense, or even very deep military partners, what this relationship about is really about now is what the United States has done with other partners in the past, including China, in the second half of the Cold War, which is start to transfer technology and develop a series of economic links and develop other capacities in a putative partner so that that partner, you know, uh, becomes an economic powerhouse, a technological player as well, and, um, you know, uh, therefore develops its own economic and military capabilities in the long term. So that, in effect, India would become an existential balancer against China. It doesn't have to be a balancer in league with the Americans. Its own natural rivalry with China will uh, put it in the forefront of being a balancer. Uh, the Chinese will always have to you know, look sideways to the West at India as India grows. And if the Americans can help India grow economically, then that's mission achieved. Uh, then the natural rivalry and balancing between China and India will, will play to their advantage. So what the Americans want above all is for India to take care of business by itself, really, in, in a sense, with some help, become a, an economic uh, force, military force, um, and not go over to the Chinese side. I mean, that's the nightmare scenario, um, you know, that India doesn't remain more or less, you know, kind of 
neutral to uh, soft tilt towards the United States, but actually goes the other way, um, that would be a, a problem for Washington. So the issue is not to sign up India necessarily to a, a grand alliance, but to build it into an existential balancer uh, against uh, China uh, and, and, not, and make sure it doesn't go over to the other side. I mean, I think that would be the extent of American calculations. Yeah, so I, I would love to pull that out a little bit further. You mentioned that you're hesitant to overstate the recent U.S.-India closeness. You don't want to predict some sort of formal alliance. You know, this may not necessarily be a permanent thing. What about India's relationship with China? How permanent or sticky is that? You wrote a whole book called India and China, Why They Are Not Friends. Uh, and I'm curious, do you see any vision in which India's relationship with China fundamentally changes? And then, you know, that could have downward effects on India's relationship with the U.S. as well. Like, what would it take for India and China to, let's say, temporarily put aside the border issue, work together a little bit, just as decades ago, China and Russia overcame a whole Sino-Soviet split? Of course, a totally different regime. But is there any sort of possibility that despite where things are between India and China now, something similar could happen between them in the future? Yeah, well, thanks for the plug on the book, first of all. Um, I mean, the book uh, focuses on why they're not friends, but it doesn't say that there are no areas of cooperation. Uh, it's just that in writing that book, I wanted to focus on conflict. And uh, my uh, publisher, of course, uh, was, uh, was pretty insistent that at the time, it was written during the Galwan crisis, that uh, that would sell as a, as a book project, uh, which was correct. But there are areas of cooperation. And um, uh, I've, I've noted already that trade is still very robust uh, between the two. Um, but what would it take for India and China to become closer and maybe even uh, switch sides, for India to switch sides? I mean, I did point out earlier that uh, fundamentally, India's view of a preferred world order does incline towards Russian and Chinese preferences much more than, say, American. So, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate that point because even Russia and China buy into many of the fundamentals of the existing order, but there are certain elements that they don't agree with, particularly the liberalism of the current order. And that's where India falls out as well. So, um, you know, I mean, I think if I was in Beijing, I would be cultivating India against the liberalness of this current order. That could help flip India. Of course, uh, a Chinese withdrawal to positions before their Galwan incursion would make it much easier for Delhi to flip sides. Um, and so I think if Xi Jinping wanted to make a, a gesture uh, that would be really meaningful, uh, he could come to a quick bargain over at least those incursions. Um, thirdly, of course, if the Chinese uh, were in a mood to compromise much more ambitiously over a final settlement of the border, that could be a complete game changer um, because that will take away the main structural problem, one of the main structural problems between India and China. There's always a, a, a structural problem at the level of the power rivalry. So even if you took away the border problem, you know, these two big countries would still be eyeing each other a little bit in terms of their power dynamics. But at least the, that huge historical sediment uh, would go away. Um, and, you know, there'd be a very real possibility that India could be flipped. Um, so I think those are at least three things that uh, uh, China could do. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, China has shown that it's not above making some of these very big kinds of decisions. 
uh, when it's in its interest to do so, and when it has a supreme leader who, who feels he has the, the capacity and flexibility to do so. Is she quite you know, a Deng Xiaoping or a Mao? I think there's a view that he's that powerful. I myself am a bit skeptical. Um, and you know, for one reason, um, uh, my skepticism really rests on the issue of uh, not so much Xi Jinping, but Chinese society which is with social media and all of that, um, there is something like public opinion out there in China that I think even she has to be very careful about. And a lot of it is focused on, you know, uh, recovering the homeland and not giving away territory. So pressure on Xi Jinping to do something about Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, which I guess now is accomplished, um, you know, and then the really other outstanding uh, problem is the border with India. Uh, that chunk of land, at least in Chinese eyes, is even larger than Taiwan. So, you know, I mean, I think much as Xi Jinping might be able to pull off an ambitious deal, he certainly would have resistance in the system uh, to it. Um, so, yeah, I, it's not an, I don't think there's much India can do to to uh, you know, really make a dramatic breakthrough in the relationship. Mr. Modi is not strong enough uh, to do that at home. Xi Jinping is stronger, but even he faces a problem. So you know, overall, I would say that you know, I don't think Washington needs to worry too much. Um, but there is one thing that's, uh, you know, that Washington should be aware of. I mean, if American criticism of India uh, on human rights, liberalism, democracy becomes, you know, more extreme, then, you know, you could see Delhi being pushed into the China-Russia camp. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, that's where Washington uh, has, to, has to take, uh, you know, a, a call, has to play it very carefully. Um, and, you know, the scenario you outlined, if there's a U.S.-China rapprochement of some kind, uh, then things will become very fluid. Uh, would India then uh, try to you know, pally up to the United States, or would it then uh, find itself reaching out more to China so that it's not you know, uh, dealt out of the game completely? Um, so I think there are dynamic scenarios that, uh, and, and possibilities, but everything points to a situation still where uh, China and India are not going to be very good friends. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate the way that you lay that out, especially looking at it from the perspective of U.S. interests. And uh, just being mindful of your time, I have a couple more questions on the military security side. You mentioned Taiwan as obviously a core interest for China and that maybe it would be difficult for China to want to deal with the Indian side of the border, given that Taiwan is such a huge issue as well. Sometimes we hear in U.S. foreign policy circles that China may not dare to take action on Taiwan, partially because it would be worried about issues it has with other countries. There are minor border disputes or island disputes that China has with many of its neighbors, but a big one that we hear about more and more given India's recent prominence in U.S. foreign policymaking circles is the regions under dispute on the India-China border in Arunachal Pradesh on the east side and Ladakh on the west side. What do you think about the sort of line of reasoning that if there were to be some sort of conflict over Taiwan, that India might take advantage of the lack of Chinese attention and India might take any sort of initiative to secure its side of the border? Well, I don't think there's any possibility of that, frankly. Um, India doesn't have the ability to project that kind of military force in Arunachal Pradesh or Ladakh. It can hold the Chinese, 
at least for the foreseeable future, um, particularly in Arunachal Pradesh, probably, um, where uh, uh, geography helps it. The mountains, terrain, and so on makes it difficult for the Chinese as well. But in Ladakh, where the, where the ingress areas are much flatter, it could be much more difficult. But the long and the short of it is that India simply does not have the capacity to project force into Tibet uh, from e either in the eastern sector, which is Arunachal, or in the western sector, which is Ladakh. So I don't see any possibility of India kind of like opening up a front against China uh, opportunistically uh, to recover what it sees as rightful territories. And by the way, India is very cautious about how much territory it's actually lost. And um, nor will it open up another front to help the Americans and the Japanese out and, and the Taiwanese out in a fight against the Chinese. Uh, but in any case, I mean, I think regardless of uh, all of that, Indian behavior, the Chinese have enough deterrent capability um, in Tibet to deal with virtually any Indian attack. So uh, even at, at a time when they might be fighting on another front. Um, so I don't, I think, the idea that India might open up another front for its own reasons or to help out the Americans and so on is quite a fantastical idea. It's just not in the realm of possibility. Nor is it very credible that India would open up a maritime front against the Chinese and, you know, sort of intercept Chinese ships uh, in the Straits of Malacca and so on. I mean, at least a couple of reasons for that. One are Indian naval limitations and the strength of the Chinese. But, uh, and that includes Indian air power. But the other is, um, you know, I mean, if there's a full-fledged conflict in the Taiwan Straits and extending into areas such as the South China Sea, which is adjacent to the Malacca Strait, I mean, it's the American Navy, perhaps with its allies, the Japanese and the Australians, who are going to stop the Chinese, you know, either, uh, you know, in and around the Malacca Strait. I don't think they need the Indian Navy very much. The Americans will take care of business there if they can. Um, and as for commercial traffic, you know, being stopped, well, what commercial traffic would want to go into the South China Sea and into the Taiwan Straits when there's a war going on? So, I mean, the idea that the Indian Navy would be there to keep the Straits open or to choke off, you know, say Chinese shippers that are carrying stuff back to China, I don't think any Chinese commercial shipping will be heading to the South China Sea or the Straits when there's a war going on. Yeah. So I just don't see this idea of the Indian Navy being a factor uh, in the Bay of Bengal up to the Malacca Straits. And certainly the Indian Navy can't project much power beyond the Straits of Malacca. It's a non-factor. And the Indian Navy is, says it publicly. It has no ability to project force beyond the Malacca Straits. So, you know, I think uh, India is simply not a factor in a Taiwan fight. I mean, at, at best, because there's a logistical agreement and various other in, intelligence agreements with the Americans. If Washington, you know, activates those during a fight with China over Taiwan, India will have to make a decision, you know. Um, now, one of the things that hasn't been picked up in the Modi-Blinken uh, joint uh, communique or statement uh, after the visit is that, you know, there's a, a couple of lines in there about how India will serve as a hub to service American warships and so on, uh, should they need that facility. So that's a possibility that the Americans will call on India to honor that agreement um, and to you know, furnish maybe a certain amount of intelligence, although 
to be frank, the Americans have such enormous worldwide in intelligence capabilities that I'm not sure that India can add much. It was the Americans who gave India intelligence on the Galwan incursion, you know, that India itself didn't have. And that's right there on India's border. Uh, the Americans knew more than the Indians knew, perhaps. So I think even this idea that India would play much of an intelligence sharing role in a Taiwan fight seems to me, you know, looking for something, you know, some sort of peanut butter to put on the sandwich. But at best, I think, you know, some American ships coming back from the theater or proceeding to the South China Sea might need rest and recreation or stop off some servicing and, you know, and repair and maintenance. That'll be a decision point for, for India. I wouldn't bet on India saying yes. Yeah, you know, when you bring up the U.S. providing intelligence to India for its regional security, I'm curious about how that fits into the sort of historical U.S. support for Pakistan. To my knowledge, there is still a significant historical memory within India of that support for Pakistan and a little bit of distrust, kind of a reminder that the U.S. was not actually on India's side in many of its conflicts. And India's historical partner in the Cold War was the Soviet Union rather than the U.S. But do you think, especially since 2020 and especially since the relationship with China on the border has, you know, gotten more severe, has there been any change in kind of the common Indian perceptions of the United States given that even the U.S. relationship with Pakistan is now quite different than it was once, is that historical trust within India waning at all? And could that be one area of potential growth for the relationship? So even if India has fundamentally an outlook of non-alignment, do you think that there is a fading of historical memory that might be opening India up a little bit more to cooperation with the U.S.? Well, yeah, I think, you know, Indian opinion on America has changed. And just in the wake of the Modi visit, a poll uh, from yesterday shows that 65% uh, of Indians are quite favorably disposed towards the United States. But this is soft opinion. Uh, you know, it could change very, very ra rapidly uh, under the pressure of events. Um, what is still true is that because of the colonial era and the Cold War, there's a lot of anti-Americanism in India, even now, just below the surface. And if you look at Twitter commentary, for instance, uh, during... Uh, the first weeks and months of uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. There's so much anti-Americanism and anti-Westernism on display there in, in Indian uh, elite uh, commentary. Uh, it was all America's fault, NATO expansion, uh, you know, sympathy for Putin and Russia, which are India's great friends going back you know, to the Cold War and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and by God, the Americans were going to be taught a lesson and America's a country in decline. I mean, just unsupported, you know, uh, kind of opinion uh, and uh, commentary type of stuff. But, you know, it, it's revealing that at an elite level and at some popular level, um, there are very mixed views of the United States. And by the way, that's true in the current Indian government. I mean, please don't imagine that, uh, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Modi and his government uh, all love the United States. <laughs> Just look at the... Uh, 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 Barack Obama made a couple of remarks about India's, uh, you know, uh, treatment of minorities and just look at the pushback from two Indian cabinet ministers and, 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 and other uh, BJP functionaries uh, against them uh, two days after the, the Modi visit. So, you know, just below the surface, there's a lot of anti-Americanism uh, and it's, it's partly colonialism, America being the successor to, you know, another big Western state that 
uh, bullies other countries, quote unquote, and all of that. So, you know, it's mixed up with uh, India's colonial legacy and anti-Westernism. Um, uh, it's uh, related to a robust sense of India wanting to be, you know, its own player and, and count, count for something in the world as a great civilization. Uh, and it's sense that it's been historically demeaned by Western countries, including the Americans, um, and so on. So, you know, there's a whole reservoir of... Having said that, I mean, yeah, the last 20 years have seen a softening of Indian opinion towards the United States. There's a diaspora there. So there are all kinds of social links uh, to the United States. For all the criticism of the Indian elite, of America, all their children sort of uh, are going to study in the United States. Uh, and uh, hanker after a green card there. So, you know, a lot of contradictions and, and posturings and, and uh, you know, bad faith in a lot of these statements. Uh, but on the whole, yeah, there's been an, uh, an improved view of the United States. Uh, but I, I would caution again, it won't take much for that opinion to flip into uh, outright public anti-Americanism. Um, and uh, if the Americans were do, uh, to do something different with Pakistan tomorrow or uh, start inclining towards China a bit more, I mean, you know, things could, uh, could change quite a bit. Um, so there'll always be in India, you know, an ambivalence towards Western countries and particularly the United States because it's the leading Western country. Uh, a view that it's a neo-imperialist bar uh, and that it um, is unreliable. Uh, and uh, often demeaning of of uh, of India. So um, I think you know that's something that the United States has to be aware of. I think Indian decision makers also are quite aware of it, um, and take some trouble to make sure that they're not seen in the company of Westerners too much. And I think part of the the kind of uh, restraint that India shows towards China, for instance, is that. It wants to, you know, make clear to the West and to the United States that uh, the West should not take India for granted, that it will maintain links to China uh, and keep its options, quote unquote, open. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, India plays a very careful game there, civilizationally, diplomatically, politically, militarily, um, of staying between China and the United States. Well, this has been such a valuable conversation, and I honestly can't imagine anyone better to be speaking with right now. And I feel, I feel like I have hundreds of more questions to pick your brain about, but you've already been very, very generous with your time. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Um, there's so much to unpack with the U.S.-China-India trilateral relationship and also how Southeast Asia fits into the picture. We've gone into a lot already, but are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? No, thank you very much. Uh, it's a relationship worth watching. Uh, for the future, the India-US, and I think also the kind of choices that Southeast Asians are going to make uh, between the US and China, uh, that's very important. My only uh, concern there is that I think to some extent, uh, and this will be my last thought, is that Southeast Asians are somewhat exaggerating the, the kind of pressures they face from the US and China. Um, and uh, uh, I'm not sure it's as stringent or as pressurizing at the moment as, as they make out. And it's probably not a good idea to play it up too much. It might become a self-fulfilling prophecy because both the Americans and Chinese will be paying attention to these statements and thinking that the other side is 
pressurizing Southeast Asians, and so they ought to be in the game as well. So I think you have to be careful in Southeast Asia not to exaggerate the degree of competition and what it might mean for Southeast Asians. And I think the second thing is um, Southeast Asians are very adept uh, historically, uh, going back centuries, if you like, but certainly uh, in the modern period since 1945, at dealing with great power interactions and, and competition. And they know how to exploit those opportunities that present themselves, and they know how to navigate the tough times as well. So I don't think Southeast Asians should sell themselves short, and neither China or the US should take Southeast Asians for granted and see them as kind of, you know, um, passive players that, that don't have agency and not able to make uh, good strategic choices. Southeast Asians are very sophisticated. That is a great thing for us to keep in mind, and that is a great point for us to end on. Thank you so much, Dr. Bajpai. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this discussion, listen to Why is Secretary Blinken's trip to China so important on NCUSCR interviews wherever you get your podcasts.